This is the What Happened Today podcast, your daily history podcast that tells you what happened on this day in history. Brought to you by the Productive Leisure Network, online, ProductiveLeisureNetwork.com, and on Facebook and Twitter, at Prod Leisure. I'm your host, Will Floyd, and what happened today, November 6th in 1860, Abraham Lincoln, the Republican Party's nominee for President of the United States, won the United States presidential election with a total of 180 electoral votes. There is no more consequential election in American history than the 1860 presidential election. Almost as soon as Lincoln was elected, southern states began organizing secession conventions. Before the year was out, South Carolina would officially secede, followed by many other deep south states who would form the Confederacy before Lincoln was even inaugurated as president. And within a month of his inauguration, civil war would break out as Confederate troops fired on Fort Sumter. The division in the nation had begun well before the 1860 election, but the sign that there wasn't just political differences or sharp disagreements over issues, most notably slavery, showed up at the 1860 Democratic National Convention. The Democrats, who actually held the White House at the time with President James Buchanan, gathered in Charleston, South Carolina in April of 1860. In 1860, the parties chose their presidents entirely at nominating conventions. And so there had been tension, but the obvious intractable rifts inside the nation showed up in Charleston. This was, in many ways, perhaps the worst location for many Northern Democrats. As is true still to this day, but was more important then, nominating conventions did not only put forward a nominee for President of the United States, but issued a party platform saying this is what the party believes and supports. And the Democrats in Charleston were heavily involved in a battle over how to term really the Democratic support for slavery led by a group of men known as Fire Eaters, most especially a newspaper editor named William Lowndes Yancey, a large wing of Southern Democrats wanted not just a pro-slavery platform, which the Democratic Party had had since it first really came together in any way under Thomas Jefferson and continued as Andrew Jackson created a new Democratic Party and throughout the 1840s and 50s but really wanted to say that the Democratic Party was for the ultimate expansion of slavery everywhere and to create new laws, which further strengthened slavery. Much of these platform disputes were really targeted at the obvious frontrunner coming into the convention, Senator Stephen Douglas of Illinois. Douglas had been the prominent Democrat in the Senate for years before 1860. His most notable accomplishment was putting together the Kansas-Nebraska Act, a compromise that he felt helped really deal with the issue of slavery in new American territories. Passed in 1854, the Kansas-Nebraska Act basically said that the brand new territories of Kansas and Nebraska, as they were beginning to move towards statehood, could decide for themselves whether they would be free or slave states by popular vote. Douglas called it popular sovereignty and challenged the way that he was bringing democracy throughout territories. However, the very notion that in any way at all Kansas and Nebraska could be slave states violated older compromises, most notably the Missouri Compromise of 1820, which said that the only state that could have slaves basically above what was 
The South at that time was Missouri. As Kansas and Nebraska are above the 36-30 parallel, defined as the limit of slavery in the Missouri Compromise, this was seen as a step to enhance slavery in the territories. Douglas said it was a chance to give democracy everywhere. Northerners, opposed to slavery and its expansion, said that it was a backdoor cut to enable Southerners to take their slaves anywhere they wanted. What it really did was cause a mini-civil war in Kansas, in what was known as Bleeding Kansas, where separate pro-slavery and anti-slavery governments were set up and then engaged in bloody guerrilla conflicts. And despite the fact that the Democrats did hold the White House under President James Buchanan, he had decided not to run for a second term. His term was extraordinarily contentious. There had been economic problems, the small panic in 1857, but also slavery had become more and more problematic. With the Dred Scott v. Sanford decision, a decision Buchanan lobbied for, the Supreme Court of the United States, under Chief Justice Roger B. Taney, said that no black man has any rights that a white man must respect. And in the process, the Democrats might have been strengthened because the Whig Party, the main rival to the Democrats for decades by this point, had collapsed. All Southern Whigs, almost universally, had now joined the Democratic Party. And the brand new Republican Party was still trying to figure out whether it was a regional party and exactly who their coalition was. But in Charleston in April 1860, it showed that it was so split along regional lines that the Democratic Party could not come to a consensus on slavery. The Fire Eaters and the Deep South delegates walked out of the hall because most Democrats supported Stephen Douglas. He actually led on almost every single ballot through the 57th until it became obvious that he would not get the actual majority needed. And so on May 3rd, the Democratic National Convention in Charleston was adjourned, and it was agreed that delegates would, would gather again on June 18th in Baltimore. This left the Republican National Convention in May of 1860 in a great place. The Republican Party had been around for less than a decade. It was essentially the group of anti-slavery Whigs and what had been known as the American Party, also the Know Nothing Party, an anti-immigrant group that had also opposed many of the Democratic Party's platform initiatives because the Democratic Party had also had support of Irish and German immigrants in New York City and other large East Coast cities. And with the Democrats divided, this could be the moment for Republicans to first take the White House. The problem was they seemed not to agree on many candidates either. The front runner was William Seward, the senator from New York. He had been one of the most prominent anti-slavery Whigs and was the most well-known figure. However, his outspoken anti-slavery views and a sense that he was connected to a corrupt New York machine run by Thurlow Weed, his longtime advisor, put a certain taint on his candidacy. Other leaders, like Salmon P. Chase of Ohio, were factional. Chase was a former Democrat, and although an ardent abolitionist, the reason he became a Republican, he was not trusted by many people in the party. Simon Cameron, the senator from Pennsylvania, was mostly there as Pennsylvania's party boss and was trying to negotiate the best position possible for himself. But he also knew that he would have support in the first ballot. But the real dark horse was Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln at that point had served exactly one term in the House of Representatives, and he was little known politically anywhere outside of his native Springfield, Illinois, until 1858, when he challenged Senator Stephen Douglas for his Senate seat. The two men engaged in a series of seven debates that not only brought about the issues of the day, 
but were printed nationwide and made Lincoln a national name. The other thought about Lincoln was not just that he had spoken so eloquently on what would be the Republican platform that pretty much everybody agreed to going in, that there would be an opposition to slavery, but not a call for its abolition, that it would require that slavery not be expanded into any brand new territories, that there was a system not unlike Henry Clay's American system that the Whig Party had run on for years of protectionist tariffs, internal improvements, and a generally more active government, but also that in some ways Lincoln was the moderate. He had given multiple speeches that talked about his opposition to slavery, but he also would always call for it to stand where it already was. And so as the Republicans convened, it became clear that Lincoln was the best shot. After William Seward did not draw enough attention on the first ballot, there was now a shuffling between the candidates. Simon Cameron and his votes from Pennsylvania, hugely important, went to Lincoln early. He slowly gathered all the votes necessary and finally being able to assuage the group of German Americans coming from Missouri and St. Louis, that he would not be so harsh on immigration Lincoln would be able to get the nomination for the Republican Party. Meanwhile, the split throughout the country created some other parties, most notably the Constitutional Union Party, who decided to nominate the former senator from Tennessee, John Bell, along with the former Massachusetts Senator Edward Everett. They were intentionally the Compromise Party. Their whole platform was their slogan, the Union as it is and the Constitution as it is. They basically said, please don't divide, just try and do something to keep going. The Democrats would later though meet in Baltimore and they would be split once more. However, when the fire eaters walked out, they basically left the rest of the delegation to choose Stephen Douglas. Douglas chose a Southerner, Herschel Johnson, as his running mate, a Georgian. And yet any conciliatory notes that Douglas made towards the South seemed fall on deaf ears. The Southern Democrats were ardently supporting candidates who argued for secession. Those who said that if they did not win, they were more than willing to pull out of the Union and create their own country, which would absolutely and without question support slavery. When the Southern Democratic Party gathered in Baltimore at the same time that Douglas was being nominated, they had a much easier time getting things together than any other party. They had an ardently pro-slavery platform and they nominated the sitting vice president, John C. Breckinridge, a Kentuckian who was an ardent pro-slavery man. His running mate was Senator Joseph Lane of Oregon, again, trying to get some geographical diversity, but Lane was a pro-slavery man as well. And so the 1860 presidential election was set. The Liberty Party would nominate Representative Garrett Smith as an ardent abolitionist party and the People's Party, basically an avenue to nominate Sam Houston, the governor of Texas, also came together. But it was really a four-way battle. And really, it was a battle that turned in different ways in different parts of the country. In the North, Abraham Lincoln's Republican Party faced off with Stephen Douglas's Northern Democratic Party. Douglas was running by saying, essentially, if you want union, vote for me. I will keep the party together and therefore keep the union together. Of course, the presence of a Southern Democratic Party seemed to belie much of Douglas's argument. And in the South, it really was a two-way battle between the Southern Democrats and John C. Breckinridge against John Bell and the Constitutional Union Party. Some people wanted the Constitutional Union Party because the Constitution as it is did mean that slavery would stay, but many also saw the appeal of Breckinridge. They wanted to support slavery no matter what. 
they were willing to secede as the 1860 election came together. In fact, it could be said that the 1860 election was a foregone conclusion. And in fact, the secession was a foregone conclusion because everyone knew what would happen if Abraham Lincoln won. The fire eaters were saying it constantly. And no one would stop in the Southern Democratic Party and say, no, we don't want this if we lose. It was pretty well agreed. When the actual election returns came in, the division inside the country was apparent. Lincoln wasn't even on the ballot in most Southern states and won almost no votes there. But he held strong throughout the North. In fact, Stephen Douglas would only win in border states, Missouri, and get a few electoral votes in New Jersey. Bell won Virginia, Kentucky, and Tennessee, all slave states, but those that were more along the border with the North, that probably were most in trouble if secession happened. But the Deep South, from North Carolina through to South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Texas, supported the Breckenridge ticket. This was, in many ways, a sense of saying, we do expect secession. We support it. And as soon as Lincoln was elected, the road to civil war was being planned for by the South. Not only were secession conventions being argued for and called for, but the Secretary of War, John Floyd, a Virginian, began making sure that the South was well-armed by moving troops and supplies to Southern bases from Northern ones. Additionally, there were so many people agitating for war throughout the South and willing it on that secession was greeted warmly. And the reason they wanted secession was they believed that Lincoln and the Republican Party really were abolitionists. In 1860, this was not true. In fact, abolitionists were quite angry with the Republican Party. Lincoln simply said, the Fugitive Slave Act must be repealed. The Dred Scott decision should be repealed. We should not repeat Kansas, Nebraska, but slavery should stay intact throughout the South. He would argue morally that it was wrong, but that the economy was built on it. And this was the Republican platform. That was not enough. In no way in 1860 could anyone have seen any way around it. Those who did try to compromise, the Constitutional Union Party most notably, did not receive much support. Only 12% of the country. Even John Bell, the head of the Constitutional Union Party, would support the Confederacy after the Battle of Fort Sumter. The man who came in second in the popular vote was Stephen Douglas. He had thought for years he would be president. And he thought he could be president because as a Northern Democrat, he had the right balance that he could bring different groups together. But the fire eaters, the ardent secessionists, did not want to compromise. They did not want to see eye to eye with anybody. They knew what they wanted. And in many ways, they even argued for Abraham Lincoln's election because they wanted secession. And they got exactly what they wanted and they did what they promised. And civil war began. And even if Lincoln was not an abolitionist in 1860, the Civil War made him one, as he would issue the Emancipation Proclamation in 1862, have it go into effect on January 1st, 1863, and would officially work to end slavery in America by passing the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution through the legislature. He was, in other words, made more radical than he was in the 1860 election. He became what Southerners feared only because Southerners seceded. But of course, they were going to secede anyway. Those were the stakes of the 1860 presidential election. And the divisions in the country are precisely why Abraham Lincoln was able to win 180 electoral votes with only 39.8% of the popular vote in the 1860 presidential election, which is what happened today, November 6th in 1860. That will do it for today's episode, but as always, please check back in tomorrow for a brand new episode because we are a daily history podcast and we do put out a new episode each and every day. You can also find all of our episodes 
on our website, ProductiveLeisureNetwork.com, and on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you are listening to us on either iTunes or Stitcher, please subscribe to this podcast, leave a rating, and leave a review, because those are the ways you can help us to get onto charts and be heard by brand new listeners. You can also help us out a bit more directly by going to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash ProductiveLeisure, and becoming one of our patrons. At Patreon, patrons give small monthly contributions to support ongoing creative work like a podcast network. So if you want to hear more of the What Happened Today podcast or any other Productive Leisure Network podcast, please go to patreon.com slash productive leisure and become one of our patrons today. You can also follow us for updates on everything to do with the Productive Leisure Network on Facebook and Twitter at Prod Leisure. Thanks for listening and see you tomorrow.